Hello and welcome to Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. Each week, you'll join Messiah's Upper Room Bible Study Class led by Pastor Jim Adi. This week, we continue our series over the Gospel of John. Enjoy. Okay, very good. All right, so where we are today... Now, if you remember, last week's lesson had nothing to do with what's on your page here today. So, so if you need an extra copy, I know some of you brought yours from last week with you, and then we also had some out here, for, uh, for, so I hope everybody has, uh, has one. So where we are is uh, Jesus is still interacting with the people that opposed him initially for doing the good thing on the wrong day. What was the good thing? He healed, he healed a guy. That was a good thing. Why was it the wrong day? Sabbath, Sabbath day. And even though the guy who got healed probably didn't think it was a bad thing on the wrong day, he probably thought it was a good thing, and he didn't even think about the fact that it was the wrong day. But everybody else who was worried about it and upset about it, they're the ones that then began to raise a stink. That Jesus was violating the third commandment, which had to do with the idea of doing work on the Sabbath, and then he 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 allowed or he he uh, encouraged this guy that was healed to also break the Sabbath rule by what? By yeah, he told him to take up your mat and go home, which kind of makes perfect sense. But that's what got everybody upset. And so what we've been looking at in John five then is this uh, ongoing uh, debate, if you will, or this ongoing uh, uh, discourse on, on what is the nature of the third commandment and why was it, did God invent it and why did he say don't do work, but kind of how does that all fit in with one's faith life, okay? So we're going to pick it up in verse 41 of John 5 as we look at, uh, look at the following words. Jesus said, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. So how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you. Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Okay, so the way Jesus is starting this out is that he's talking about where does he get his approval from? And so when he says, I do not receive glory from people, that's, that's not exactly the best translation of the, of, of the Greek uh, language there. So I, I put it down there for you in your notes under point E, where it, what he's really saying, and it's better understood as glory, which is another word for praise. So if we can think of praise if, uh, in, that, in that sense, he's saying praise from people I do not take. Praise from people I do not take. And the note there is that Jesus knows the seductive power of human approval. It not only feeds the ego, but it is one of the most insatiable and harmful stimulants to the soul. Jesus recognized the trap of it throughout his ministry. 
So let's talk a little bit about that. So uh, personal confession time. How many of you would describe yourselves as a people pleaser? Oh, more than half the group. Very good. The rest of you are dishonest and we have no use for you. <laughs> okay, so what's, what, what's attractive about a people pleaser? What's attractive? If, you're on the, if you are in a working relationship or in your family or something, and, or you're married to a people pleaser, what's attractive about that? There's no confrontation. The, well, okay, now that's interesting. I wasn't even thinking of that. Can you say more about that? Is this personal experience or have you just heard this? When you get along with people, you know, and uh, then uh, you're not confrontational and, and things go smoothly. Things go smoothly. Okay, so I'm just going to put this up here. Pleasing people. We'll do it in purple because that's like my favorite color. So, okay, so you're saying that that what's attractive to about it is that things are kind of like, okay, there's kind of like no drama because whatever it is that somebody wants, that person does, and then they're happy and you're happy and everybody's happy, okay? All right, that's a great myth. Good. Right. It validates your hard work and motivates you to do more. It keeps you going. It validates your hard work. It validates your hard work, so, and it keeps you going. So, it, and that's true as long as what? Because you keep getting it. Yeah, because what happens if you are trying to get validated or trying to get approval from somebody that doesn't give it, no matter how much you do? So as long as you get it, I'm, and I'm, I'm with you, as long as you're getting it, then you are motivated to do more. Yeah. True? Okay, another thing that's attractive. Yes, Mary Jo. Everybody likes a pleaser. When you're a people pleaser, people will like you. Everybody likes you. That's right. And isn't that wonderful? It is wonderful. Yes, it is. And it feels very, like, connected. You, you're connected. You, you have a way of... of uh, engaging and 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 maybe you're charming and funny and hilarious as a bible study teacher you know <laughs> and people say wonderful things about you and you love it right and you kind of carry that home with you and through the week yeah you get invited to all the parties you get invited to the parties <laughs> yeah well i'm still working on that part but <laughs> But no, you do, right? Because people say, we want that guy, we want that person at the party. Oh, it's such a wonderful, that's just a wonderful thing. Okay? What would be the opposite of people pleasing? <laughs> there was some murmuring over here that probably was spoken in such a way that no one over here heard it, so you better, if you're going to, so what was it again? What, who said what, Marv? What did you say? Stand up. <laughs> <laughs> he said a politician, I think is what you said. Yeah. I thought for a second you were going to say a preacher, so that's good. All right. Um, okay, so, but that's kind of, we're looking at now a person, but what, in terms of the pleasing part if I'm not going to please people, and maybe it's sort of put others in here, then what's the opposite of that? Self-centered. Yeah, please. So we'll put please self way over here, okay? 
I do that in red because that's not my favorite color. All right, please self. Okay, now what's attractive about pleasing self? You don't care about the other people. <laughs> you don't care about the other people, but okay, so what's attractive about that? It's a lot less work on your less part. Work. It's less, I'll oh, say, say more, it's less work on your part. If you only care about yourself, then you don't care what other people think. You don't care if they're happy about what you do. So you only have to just worry about yourself. Yeah, you only kind of kind of have one boss, don't you? Right? And the boss is you. All right? Pastor? Yes. But to a certain extent, we all want to please. Because there's something, little person that sits inside me that said, no, you don't want to do that. That isn't good. And so I want to please myself to that regard. Not, not because I'm pushing away other people and not wanting to please them, mm -hmm. but part of it is pleasing yourself, making yourself proud of yourself. Yeah, which sounds, for whatever reason, sounds healthier than this, maybe. Okay. It's just a healthy part of that. It's the healthy part of that. Well, we're not ready for the healthy part yet. Yeah, I want, to take, I want to take people down the dark road first before we get to the light road. Okay, what else is attractive about pleasing self? Do you admire people that are very self-directed? And they seem to have a sense of, here's where I want to go, and here's what I want to accomplish, and I'm not too worried or encumbered by worrying about who's going to be mad at me for doing it, and maybe that... Uh, they would be like rejecting of me in some way or something like that. Or do you admire people like that? They accomplish more. They don't have to set up a committee before they... <laughs> oh, thank you. Pardon me while I do a little maintenance here. <laughs> Keep talking. That's fine. That's all I know. Oh, no, you have to say more while I do the house cleaning here. I've got good experience with this, I assure you. Yeah. Okay, so they don't, right? So there's something... There is something attractive about that, particularly from leaders, like a leader of a team or a church or a group or even a country to some degree, because it's just this idea that, that I know where we need to go. But oftentimes, sometimes, this person leaves everybody in the dust, right? And then everybody else is saying, wait, 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 we're trying to catch up to where you're at, okay? So it's possible that... This could be the extreme of either side of the spectrum, right? Is that you can take pleasing self to the, to, the, to the nth degree and to where it becomes harmful, or you could take pleasing others to the nth degree where that might be harmful as well, true? Now, what's interesting is that Jesus always was encountering people who seemed to be wanting him to go this direction in terms of pleasing others, which included the idea that if they approved of why he came, then they could somehow define for him why he came and that what his life and mission and ministry and purpose was all about was to keep everybody happy. So who in Jesus' life was unhappy with what he would do but wanted to be happy. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, as an example, the, the sort of organized uh, sectarians of the day. I, I'm not going to say religion of the day because that was different, but these were sectarians. So they were continually upset with Jesus because he wasn't doing what? He wasn't, he wasn't interested in their approval. 
He loved them just like he loves us, right? And he certainly wouldn't turn his back on an opportunity to teach them and talk to them. But he always was all about his father's will for him. It never was all about the idea that, well, let me, uh, let me see, which way, see which way the wind's blowing with you, and then I'll just uh, craft my message or craft my purpose to fit what you want for me to be. So what we see here is Jesus saying, glory or praise from people I do not take. Well, if you're not pleasing, all about pleasing other people, and you're not all about pleasing yourself, then who are you pleasing? Who's loud? Yeah, see? So for, for Jesus, it was all about, and then for us, it becomes the same thing. It's all about pleasing God. But here's the difference. The difference is in the motive. In what way could pleasing others be selfish? That it's really not about pleasing other people, it's really all about you. In what way could that happen in people-pleasing? And those of us that are people-pleasers already know the answer to this one. Well, as you stated, it feeds your ego, for one thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Before it becomes detrimental. Yeah. Does it feel good to do this? Yeah. Now, is there anything wrong with people-pleasing? I mean... No, there's nothing wrong with it, but, but where, where the danger of it is, is what? Is that the motive for doing it is all about me. Now, what about over here, pleasing self? Could, could pleasing self be all about me? Yeah, it's almost kind of built in that way. How many of you remember uh, Johnny Manziel? <laughs> okay, he's a... No, no, he's, he, he would be a good example, okay? Um, when Johnny Manziel was at the height of his popularity, won the Heisman Trophy, was maybe one of the guys, one of the first, I don't know if he was a first-round draft pick in the NFL, I can't remember if he was, but when he was at the height of his, his popularity, his public statement was, I don't care what anybody else thinks. All that matters is what I think. And I remember that, because I had, I had been talking to some people that because he was an A&M guy, not that we're going to hold that against him too much, but, but I remember talking to some college-age kids who were also themselves students at A&M. And, and I would not just pick on A&M this way. I would say that, that to some degree, generationally, this is part of what's, what's going on, is that when he came out with that statement, that was greatly admired. Now, I wouldn't say I admire it, of course I wouldn't, because I'm way over here in the extreme of people-pleasing. Yeah, right? Okay, that, that makes sense. But it was surprising to me to hear from college-age kids that that approach or that perspective was admired. And what do you think was admired about it? That this was a self-made guy, that this was somebody who was not going to be, be bowled over by the establishment or, or by tradition or by whatever it is that people expected of him, because by golly, it's all about me. And that's kind of been the tragedy of his life and his story, and hopefully, maybe, through it all, the, the crash and burn that has occurred over here will sort of lend itself to the idea that I can move back to the middle, which is all about pleasing God. So what's the motive in pleasing others or pleasing self is that it's all about me. What's the motive in pleasing God? Why do we do it? Why would we dedicate our lives to it? Why would it 
govern or inform the decisions that we make on a day-to-day basis? Out of love, we love our Creator. Hmm? We love our Creator, so we want to honor Him. We do, but why do we love Him? He first loved us. Ah, because he first loved us. See, see, the difference is, is that you dedicate your life to, to uh, pleasing God, to uh, doing God's will. That was always about, Jesus would always say that again and again and again. I'm here to do the Father's will. Even if it makes the people that are over here mad, and even if the people over here are suspicious of it. I'm always here to do the Father's will. So that becomes our life as well. And we please God out of a response in gratitude for all that he... And I'm putting that up on the board here. A response in gratitude for everything he's already done for me. See, that takes it out of the realm of that I'm the ultimate beneficiary of either the please self or the please others. And the beauty of it is, is that... Pleasing others, and those of you that have kind of gotten caught up in that sometimes, as well as pleasing self. It's like a giant bucket with a big hole in the bottom of it. And so no matter how much you have done, it's what have you done for me lately. And so one of the questions that ends up inevitably happening with somebody who's either over here in the people-pleasing extreme or in the pleasing self-extreme is, how do I know when I've done enough? And the answer to that is what? You'll never know. And you have to live with that. And that's sometimes what fuels then a fearful life for the people-pleaser, is when have, I, when have I done enough? And what happens if in doing what I thought I should do to please you, it doesn't. So what's so interesting about it is that when we live in that middle realm, we don't have to worry about that. Yeah. I just need to share a Bible verse that's been on my heart Uh the past few weeks. It comes from Hebrews. I wish I could tell you the exact scripture. Sure. Um, Work in me what is pleasing to you, and that takes it out of your hands. You're opening yourself to God yeah. to work it in you, the things that are pleasing to Him. And if, when that happens, you're walking the walk, you're walking with Jesus. That's great. You yeah. know, you're, you're doing His bidding mm-hmm. and just being open to that. So. so how do you know what pleases God? Ten Commandments. That's a good place to start. The Ten Commandments is a good place to start. Yeah. Yeah. In fact... I think I would sort of suggest that if you just had the Ten Commandments like in your back pocket, like you could pull it out on a little card, maybe a big card for some of us, you wouldn't have to worry about everything else in the Bible. Now, I know that's going to sound terrible, and I don't mean that we just ignore the rest of the Bible, but what I'm saying is, is that if you, if you wanted a very succinct um, index of what a God-pleasing life looks like, I don't think, I, I think you can go wrong with the Ten Commandments. Yeah. The one that covers all the Ten Commandments, Jesus said, is love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself, which is a nice summary. And Jesus himself says that's a summary. So perfect. Yeah, Max. Uh, we call those the original guidestones. The, the original what? Guidestones. Yeah, yeah. He wrote it on stone. Oh, yeah, that's right. Guide us to keep our life less constant. And for us, they're like a stone hitting our heads, so that's perfect, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, knocking this around a little bit. Okay, so, so Jesus, you know, again, see, I love this about him is that 
he uses opportunities in engaging with people to teach us a truth that it goes beyond just that conversation that he had with, with these folks. And so Jesus is saying it's for our good that he is all about the Father's will. And that because the idea is to please the Father and to do as the Father wants, that becomes the ultimate benefit to us. Does that make sense? And so when it's all about living in a, a grateful life, then the focus is always on what you're grateful for rather than the idea that somehow you have to earn or merit the, 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 the thing that he's done for us. It's all about his unconditional love. Okay? We, did we sort of take that through to its nth degree? All right, let's go to the next page. All right? So now, chapter 6. Yay, chapter 6. We go to verses 1 to, uh, one to 5. 6. <laughs> After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. That was the Roman name for it. And a large crowd was following him because he, they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. One of the interesting things about the way that the Gospels present geography in terms of picking up on what Jesus is about is that we see that in, in, in when he talks about the idea that Jesus goes up on a mountain. Now, when, he's, when, the, when it says that, my initial thought is, oh, you know, mountain-like, you know, Rocky Mountains kind of thing, you know, 10,000 feet into there. That's not real, really what he's talking about here. Around here, what is the high, have you noticed this? What's the highest mountain there is around here? El Capitan. No, I'm, I'm talking about in our local area. You know, you know where it is? Cedar Hill. Do what? Cedar Hill. Yeah, Cedar Hill is one. I was thinking of the landfill over there at, uh, in Flower Mound. You know, I think about that whenever I drive these landfills. You know, they got these big... And so, so think of it that way, okay? Um, you know, he, Jesus went up on the landfill. So think of it that way, okay? <laughs> All right, well, but partly because of what happens, okay? Partly what happens. Because he... He's up there, and then what do they see? This mass of mob of people coming. And it would be hard to picture that happening on top of, you know, Mount Everest or something. It's just, you know, that doesn't quite fit. So, so think of it that way. But what's interesting in the Gospels is that very often Jesus uses a mountain or a hill as the place where he teaches his disciples differentiated from the crowds. Can, so can you think of some other examples where, where Jesus did some teaching or some instructing to his disciples alone, separate from the crowds of people, and he did it uh, geographically on top of the hill or the mountain? Can you think of that? Gethsemane. 
Gethsemane was the Mount of Olives, okay, so there you have a separating that takes place at night, too, that there was a separating, and it was just him and his disciples and the intimate, you know, number of Peter, James, and John. Okay, what else? Transfiguration. Transfiguration takes place up on a mountain, doesn't it? Again, or at least a high place, where it's Peter, James, and John, and the rest of the disciples are somewhere else, and then the crowds are nowhere to be seen. So that's a good example. What else? We have a little bit of fish and bread. Do what? Yeah, so that's coming up. All right. What about the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7? Yeah, the, the first part of Matthew 5 talks about that, that Jesus took his disciples away on top of a high place, if you will, or a mountain. So again, it's just kind of an interesting little detail that goes along with the way that the story is told. So they, they go, the disciples, uh, 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 Jesus goes away to the other side of the, sea, of the Sea of Tiberias. They see all these people coming. Jesus pulls them aside. Now notice what is the reason why people are now being attracted to Jesus. Because what? Yeah, they're, they're catching on that Jesus is some, something special. And they're seeing, uh, John says that they saw the signs that Jesus was doing on the sick. So, so kind of revert back from, to previous uh, chapters. What does that word sign indicate? It is something miraculous. No question about that. But there's some significance to that word sign. What is it? It was something that pointed to what? That this is messianic. That this is more than just Jesus doing nice things for people. Yeah, a lot of people get pleased when he would do the signs. Well, at least some people if he did it on the right day, right? <laughs> okay, in the right way. But the people are recognizing that there is something greater going on here and they are attracted to him. So you got this large mob of people. So now Jesus pulls his disciples aside, puts them kind of in this high place, separate from the people. He sees them coming, and he turns to Philip and he says, "Where are we gonna? How are we gonna feed everybody?" And he says this to do what? To test him. Now, what is the test? Do you think their faith in what? That Jesus will provide. That Jesus will provide. Okay. We'll toy with that. That Jesus will provide what? Food? I, yeah, I think so. Actually, I think it's setting up, it's setting up the miracle they're showing the magnitude of what he's about to do. Okay, can you stand up and say that? Because I thought that was pretty good. <laughs> Plus, I want everybody over there to hear it, yeah? He's actually setting up the miracle where he's where he can show how ma the magnitude of what he's about to do yeah. to everybody's understanding. Yeah, it's almost like a teaser, isn't it? You know, it, not that he is teasing, but it's just almost sort of wetting their appetite for the idea. Yeah, okay. But why Philip? Ooh, why Philip? Why not Matthew? Why not Peter? Peter. Yeah, Peter, that would have been a good one. What about, why, why not that? Was was Philip's faith weak? And so now I'm going to say, well, your faith is weak, so I'm going to identify you as the one now that I'm going to test as opposed to everybody else. Have you ever felt tested by God? <laughs> yep. 
And when you were being tested, do you ever feel like you're the only one in the whole room that's being tested? Because maybe you thought that when you looked around in this room of people here and you thought, oh, my faith probably is the weakest of everybody here. Anybody ever thought that before? Compared your faith to others? So does Jesus test you? Yeah. Okay. Well, let's see what happens. He said he said this to test him. But what? He already knew, right, what he was going to do. Let's take it one step beyond the idea that it was all about testing Philip's faith or our faith and move it into the idea that perhaps what he might have also been doing was beginning the process of broadening their perspective. Broadening their perspective. See, one of the things that can sometimes happen to us when we are early in our faith walk is that we tend to have a very narrow perspective in terms of the way in which God can provide, the manner in which he does it, and also the circumstances by which he does it. And I think it's just a natural human tendency to think in a very limited way. And we're going to see that in the story. The natural limited way of seeing God at work is to say that it's a very specific situation. We have a lot of people, they need to eat. And Jesus is saying, how are we going to feed them? How are we going to support them? How are we going to provide for them? And the natural human tendency when we're posed with that dilemma is what? Is to take a natural human, right? A natural human viewpoint would be to say, okay, how many resources do we have? And then let's compare that to the number of people that need to be provided for. And then we'll do the math. And based on the math and our perspective of what is needed, everybody gets an eyedropper full of whatever it is that can be done. And it seems to me that what Jesus is starting to do is broaden their perspective on understanding just how he does what he does. And instead of seeing life through the human eyes of limited resource having to do a lot of good, he is now going to broaden their perspective on just what it is that he is all about. So the questions that I pose there in the kind of the middle of the page for you is, he wants to know where are they in their thinking? about this daunting problem of human need? Would they look at the problem through God's unlimited viewpoint, or would they look at the problem through their own limited viewpoint? Would they see this through the faith-driven eyes of possibilities? How many of you are possibility people? You just kind of roll that way. Philip, you are? What does that mean? What does that mean for you to be a possibility person? Wow, putting him on the spot. Yeah, as you have done the last few weeks to me. So, you know, it's only right. Well, just uh, able to see what the options are. At least that's what I interpret it to be. Like, yeah. Able to see, like, well, we could go down this path or this path. Just see how many different possibilities there are. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the refreshing aspects of younger people. Have, have you even noticed this, that as you got older and wiser and grumpier... That sometimes it's a little bit hard to appreciate people that say, 
Well, why do we have to do it that way? <laughs> really? I mean, do you, have you noticed that? And, and, and that one of, the, one of the wonderful things about, you know, Philip, but just not Philip, you're, you are now representative of all people your age, Philip, okay, is that there is that kind of openness to, that, not in a disparaging way to say, why do we have to do it that way, but, but that sometimes that feels like it's limiting the possibilities. And it seems to me that that's what Jesus is doing, is that he's opening their minds to to consider the possibility that there might be some other thing happening here that is going to blow them away and is way bigger than just the issue of 5,000 people and how are we going to feed them and where's the food going to come from. All right, thank you, Philip. That was very good. Nice cover. All right, so let's see what happens in verse 7. Philip answered, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get an eyedropper full. Then one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. Now, if he had just stopped there, that would have been somebody who, who got it in terms of potential and possibilities. But then his humanness took over, and he asked, But what are they among so many? 200 denarii. The, so there is a little bit of a math here. A denarii was considered to be a day's wage. The Romans paid the denarii in small silver coin worth about 18 cents. So they were like very generous, the Romans were. All right. So Philip did the math and stated the ob- obvious. 200 days worth of wages could not purchase enough food to feed that crowd. Philip, we would say, was a realist. How many of you are realists? Yeah, we have a few realists in the group here, okay? Yeah. And what is, what's import, why is it important to have a realist in the group? Why is that a good thing? Practicality. Pardon? Practicality. Yeah. I mean, somebody's got to, like, you know, let's keep our feet on the ground. Let's not get too big to ourselves. What can, though, sometimes happen if a realist is very real uh, with a bunch of dreamers? And possibility people. What can happen in that interaction? Yeah, see, so what happens sometimes is that the realist will crush the, uh, the dreaming of the dreamer or the possibility person. Right? That can happen. Yeah. But sometimes what can happen is the dreamer scares the bejeebies out of the uh, realist, right? Because they're so unrealistic, you know? So you can see where there's this, this dynamic that goes on. Okay. So where Philip sees no possibility of solutions, he's like, I'm done. Andrew, he says, well, there is this little bit which some guy's mother packed for him to eat his own lunch. But again, looking at it from the human perspective of limitation, how in the world could that be of any good? Well, let's see what happens. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in that place. See, so that's how we know this is not like a, a Rocky Mountains, okay? This is like the landfill hill, okay? It's already filled in. Which, by the way, have you noticed that when they do landfills? They fill, they seed it all with grass. It's just wonderful. Um, <laughs> so, the men, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. So what does that tell you about how many were there? There were a lot more. 
And one of the, one of the commentators that I was reading said that when, he, when Jesus had them sit down, that they sat down in family groupings. Groupings of, you know, 25 and 50 and 100, that sort of thing. So there was some sense of tribal thing here. And that's probably why they're counting the men and not counting the women and the children. Okay? So Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who had seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, there's that word sign again, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Now there's a little... I'm going to use the word formula. That's not really the right word. That there's a little sequence here that Jesus engages in that is already a, a, uh, a forerunner of something that is yet to happen. Now, again, John tells us uh, what big event for Israel is happening around this time. Passover. Passover. Okay, so that already gives us a little clue. Okay, Passover. Well, if you look at the way this is described, Jesus in verse 11, what does he do? He took the loaves, he gave thanks, and he distributed or he gave it. So what, might, what bell might that ring in your head? It's the same language used of communion when he celebrates his last Passover with his disciples. What does he do? He takes the bread, he breaks it, he gives thanks, he breaks it, and he distributes it. I don't know if you notice this or not, maybe you have. In our communion liturgy, the words of institution capture those very words. And when he had given thanks, he, he distributed, etc. Okay, so it's just a, these are little ringers there where John and, 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 of course, Jesus is connecting the dots. It's not by accident that this particular sign takes place at Passover, And it's not by accident that Jesus is using the same sort of rhythm or pattern to to make this happen as he connects those dots. So everybody gets how much to eat? As much as they want. Right. And then he says, let's make sure that we don't have anything left over. So they gather 12 baskets full. Why 12? Because there's 12 disciples, right? Okay, there's nothing more uh, magical about that, all right? But notice now what happens is the same people who had seen him do the amazing things he was doing with the sick, healing the sick, and they're starting to get excited about this sign of the Messiah. Now they are witness and direct beneficiary of this next sign, which has to do with Jesus feeding the 5,000 because they're in the 5,000. And so what do they begin to say? to each other. This is the guy. This is the guy. Well, let's see what happens. Verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again where? To the mountain by himself. What would have motivated them? 
after witnessing and participating in this amazing thing that Jesus had just done, what would motivate them? I mean, if you think about it from just that human perspective, what better deal would there be than to have a king who could put food on the table for everybody as much as they wanted any time they wanted? Now, let's just pretend that Jesus, that it was important to Jesus to be a pleaser. What would he have done in that situation? He would have stuck around, right? Because all these people like me as long as I do what? Put food on the table. And Jesus, seeing that was about to happen, does what? He says no to this. He says no to this, and he says yes to this. And you see, that's what Jesus was always all about. Sometimes pleasing God in your life will require you to hack off other people in your life. And it's not because that's your intention to make people mad at you or to say to people, well, you're terrible and I don't want anything to do with you. It isn't that. Sometimes following God and pleasing God and responding to what he has done for you in gratitude requires you both to say no to others and no to yourself and whatever it is in yourself that is so easily worshipped. See, one of the things that can happen for those of us that kind of wrestle with pleasing people or even to some degree pleasing other people are pleasing ourselves, is that we think erroneously to ourselves that if we do that, that will give us security in life. Right? Isn't that true? Yeah. I mean, that's one of the traps of it. And to some degree, as long as I keep doing that, well, yeah, then maybe I have some temporal security. But it's always conditional. But when I dedicate myself to pleasing God in grateful response for what he has done for us, then where do I get my security? From the only one that can truly provide it, which is God himself. And so Jesus knew that and saw that. Now, you know, did Jesus not know that was going to happen ahead of time? No, he knew that was going to happen ahead of time. And he went ahead and did what? Made provision. He went ahead and and met, met that need. But then in meeting that need, he also knew that I'm doing this because it's part of the Father's will that I sort of leave these signs out for people to see that I'm the Messiah, but I'm not going to be the kind of Messiah they think they want. Because my idea of Messiah, Jesus would say, would take me to the cross. That wouldn't be the idea in their minds of what Messiah would be. So... I think there's a good challenge here for us today. Does it sometimes cost you something to please God or to do his will? Might it, ple- might it cost you um, some friends? Might it cost you a few likes on social media? More than a few, I suspect. When you, but see, when you stand up for this, the, the, the pleasing God part then that kind of tempers the pain that comes along with having people dump you because you're not pleasing them anymore. 
And so that's a good thing for us to, for us to sort of chew on this week. Okay, closing thoughts. Wow, I got the last word. That's amazing. All right. <laughs> so let's close the prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for the challenge that uh, in these words today that really kind of puts that in front of us that sometimes it's just so easy to, to think in terms of what life is all about is the security you get from pleasing others or saying to yourself, oh, I don't care what other people think. It's the only thing that matters is what I think. And at the end of the day, that, that, that's such a tenuous place to be. We're so grateful that you've given to us the gift of your son, Jesus, who lived and died and rose again for us, who did it all for us without us earning it or deserving it in any way. And then he just offers that to us as a gift so that in receiving it in faith, then, then we can go through life knowing that our security is secured and that what life is really all about and the fullness of life is that we can live our lives pleasing you in grateful uh, response for what you've done for us. So this week, dear Lord, and especially as we kind of think about Thanksgiving, which is coming up in a couple weeks, would uh, challenge each of us to, to live our lives that way. And that kind of starts with today, that we live our lives that way today. And that we enjoy the, and celebrate each day the gifts that you give to us in your son and the gift that you've given to us in each other. Watch over us and be with us this week until we're together again. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Messiah's Upper Room. Here at Messiah Lutheran Church, our mission statement is sharing his light. That means sharing the light that is Jesus Christ and telling others about his gospel. If you want to join us in that mission, please share this podcast with someone that may want to come and better know the light of Jesus. Use one of our past episodes as a starting point to start a discussion with someone, or use a past series as a personal Bible study or devotional for your family or small group. If we've given any value to you at all, consider leaving this podcast a rating and review on iTunes. That will help us climb the iTunes rankings so we may better spread the reassuring good news of Jesus Christ and continue to share his light with anyone willing to listen. Thank you again so much for listening, and until next time, may God bless you throughout your week. Bye.